RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 5, Episode 20, The Gamesters of Triskelion, Daily Production Report, October 1967. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans, all you Star Trek history buffs, all you canonistas, I do say that lovingly, and of course, all of our wonderful Trekophiles. Hey, listen. Uh, I promised you a return of this week's guest because we've got a lot more to say about, yes, you guessed it, Angelique Pettyjohn. So, John Flynn is back with us, the author of a new book about Angelique. So, please take a look, as always, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Um, you can see some more sample documents related to uh, Angelique's time on the games or Triskelion. But then come right back with us and we'll get into more of Angelique Pettyjohn this week again. Star Trek, Friday, October 20th, 1967. Gamesters of Triskelion. Director, Gene Nelson. Production number 60346. Date started Tuesday, October 17th, 1967. Estimated finish date Tuesday, October 24th, 1967. Number 10, Angelique Pettyjohn. Makeup, 7 a.m. On set, 8.30 a.m. Dismiss set, 6.12 p.m. All right. Yes, well, that's a, that's a production report from just one of Angelique's shooting days. It gives you an idea of her makeup call time <laughs> and what it was like. She was number 10 on the call sheet there. Um, but there was a lot more to Angelique Pettyjohn's life than her Star Trek episode, although it was a highlight of her life, as we've recently learned from a longtime friend... Uh, and now the author of a book about Angelique Pettyjohn, John Flynn. I promised you all we'd have him back because there's even more to hear about Angelique, including her time with Star Trek after that episode film. She did make it into the convention years and meet a lot of her fans. And also just a lot more of Angelique's incredibly fascinating life. Uh, so, John, welcome back and thanks for coming back to share more about Angelique with us. Larry, thank you so much for having me on again. Uh, well, this is what so that that snippet that we had was one of her shooting days, and I think we mentioned last time you visited that uh, she looked at her Star Trek episode as uh, at her Star Trek time. She had a lot of other uh, career opportunities, and uh, and as uh, you know, she, as she got on in years, the convention circuit I, I, feels like it it kind of rejuvenated her career in a way, did it? Absolutely. Do you know um, most actresses her age? would have been looking at retirement uh, or doing those small mom and pop kinds of roles. But you know, while she was doing the convention, she's sitting behind a dealer's table autographing pictures. Many of the young men who had seen her on the Star Trek episode back in 1967 were now adults and they were working in the industry. And uh, people like Fred Olin Ray, for example, uh, came by her dealer's table and said, are, are you the Angelique Pettyjohn from that Star Trek episode? And, no, no you know, I'm the, another the, Angelique Pettyjohn. 
and they fell yeah. in love with her all over again. And uh, all of them, uh, I would say universally, would say to her, you know, I'm making a movie right now, and I've got just the part for you. And so she had like a renaissance for her career in the 1980s. You know, I, I was telling you before, she appeared on two episodes of the top-rated Hill Street Blues. Mm, uh, okay. she, did, she did Repo Man, uh, Biohazard, The Lost Empire. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, the Wizard of Speed and Time. All right when, again, most actresses right. her age who are going into retirement. And by her age, we're talking about 30s, 40s, uh, in 40s, the 50s, yeah, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Sad, yeah, yeah. and it's 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 another aspect of Hollywood that's changing for the better. But yes, in that time, in the 70s and 80s, that was the that was the reality of it. Well, you had me at Repo Man. <laughs> I mean, anybody that's around there, they're so. Uh, and yes, and now you think of those eyes as well as you know. Um, no matter what the age, what the era, and what the plot, those those eyes of hers. What else did she share from? Well, there's a big story here that's that's one of the one of the uh, amazing stories in your book. But before we get to the Elvis chapter, was there anything else from? Um, did she have any other great like fan stories she shared with you? Start from well, the you conventions. Know, when, um, uh, I will uh, I will tell you that she did a very tiny little convention in Maryland. I was there. I was with her, uh, and. Um, uh, there may have only been 300 people at the convention. <laughs> and, but this little boy who had multiple sclerosis uh, and her mom were there. Mm. And she just fell in love with this little boy. And uh, um, she brought a number of her props and items with her. She sold them and, and gave them to the mother so that the boy could be taken to Johns Hopkins um, and I, I tell you, that uh, warms my heart whenever I tell that story. Then years later, when she was undergoing uh, a double mastectomy, unfortunately, mm -hmm. she was afraid that the fans would forget her. Well, when she came out of the operating room, her, her room was plastered with notes and cards and even a little um, drawing from this boy saying, we love you. Oh. And uh, the Star Trek fans, really uh, raised her mood, made her feel great. And uh, all I can say is God bless the Star Trek fans for what they did for her. Well, yeah. She, and she died in 1992. She was just a year shy of, uh, she was 49, basically. Um, just shy of her 50th birthday, I think. Um, was that what she did pass away from? Did the, the, Was it breast cancer or, or something? Well, now she... Um, um, <clears throat> she recovered from that, had mm -hmm. reconstructive surgery, um, early, early reconstructive surgery. She ended up um, contracting a different kind of cancer, which is oh. cervical cancer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, and, but you knew her about those 10 years and she shared a lot of her of her life and the highs. I, it's, it's amazing. That is so cool. And that happens so much with anybody, so much with anyone associated with Star Trek that. Uh, you know, the traditional Hollywood view was, you know, signing shows and things like that are where you where your career goes to die. Like, well, if you can't do real work anymore, you just go and sit at a desk and say and and Star Trek. And now the, the whole Comic-Con culture has totally revolutionized that. And people are, are great to get out and and um, and see that as an adjunct to their career. And in her case, it was a great a great rejuvenator. It, it was, and it really gave her that sense that 
people still wanted to see her and her work at the conventions were were not mis misguided. Uh, that was actually a beautiful way to segue into the next part of her life. Well, speaking of her life here, now this book <laughs> is a step beyond Star Trek, but it's certainly something that anyone that follows pop culture, this whole chapter about her and Elvis, and she had a, she had a son by Elvis. How did that it's amazing that you all had the relationship where she brought you into this, even to the extent that she did. But just tell everyone about that. It's in the book, but tell everyone yes, um, yeah. what it was yeah. like for you this to find this out step by step. Yeah, Larry, this is uh, uh, this was such a surprise for me. Uh, there was a deep sadness I noticed in mm -hmm. her as we spent a lot of time together. Um, and I never knew what that was until 1986. When she says, I, I, I need you to come with me to court in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Now, just, just thinking, to well, set this, she... let me just frame this. Yeah. So you two had met in 1982-ish. Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. You'd been going to cons for 10. You were at the first New York Star Trek convention, so you're an old con girl. Yeah. You'd met her, struck up a friendship, became acquaintances. She's, not only say she's not elderly at all, obviously, but she's glad to have someone stable to help with. And you're both kind of East Coasters, right? East side of the country folks. Well, she she lives on the West Coast. Oh, I okay. Lived, uh, uh, okay. So Baltimore you're cross country then. So you've known yeah. her for about four years. Yeah. And, and you get this call. Yes, but you know, she was we were talking almost every night. And sometimes mm. it was about the work, sometimes it was about her life. And you know, I, I was studying to be a psychologist at the time, eventually earned my PhD as a psychologist. And I felt most of the times when she called, she just needed someone to listen so she could talk through things that were going on in her life. And mm -hmm. when she asked me to come in, uh, and again, this is January 1986, to come to Vegas, you know, she's not inviting me to Vegas to marry me. She's inviting me to <laughs> Vegas because she, she has uh, an issue that uh, is very important to her, and she wanted me to be there to get lend support. And I was more than happy to do it. I had no idea what it was about, though. I'll be honest with you. I just went because... <laughs> you were literally flying blind. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, beautifully, beautifully put. If I write a, uh, a second edition, I'll add that. Okay. Uh, but, uh, so when I got to Vegas, um, we met at the courthouse, and um, she said, we're going to a certain courtroom, courtroom two, if I remember right. And we got in there, and we sat down, and she says, uh, now, we're, we're going to be listening for the results of uh, a judge's uh, finding about a man named Philip Stanek. And I'm thinking, okay, Philip Stanek doesn't sound familiar to me. I hadn't met uh, him through her, so I had no idea who this was. Mm -hmm. And so we sat, we sat in the back of the courtroom, and uh, Philip Stanek came up first. And uh, he provided a ton load, a pile, a mountain load, really, of documents. And uh, the, the judge in the case, um, Carl J. Christensen, I still remember that name, um, <laughs> pounded his gavel and said, uh, you asked for a name change, uh, Philip, I'm giving you the name Elvis Aaron Presley Jr. And I was shocked because I, I had no idea that that had anything to do with Elvis or, you know, and I had no idea why we were there. 
And, and uh, this is about nine was, years. Elvis, I remember this. I was about to, well, I was, I, Elvis died in 1977, August 1970. So this is only nine years after yeah. he'd passed. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, so she was up and out of the courtroom as soon as that decision re- was uh, rendered. And I chased after her. We got down to the elevator and I said, what's wrong? And, sh- and she said, uh, uh, I have to go. I, I can't be here anymore. And I said, why? And she says, that was my son. And hmm. I never knew anything about children, never knew anything about uh, a son or a daughter or anything like that. Uh, uh, she told me while we were together that she was not able to conceive any children any any longer. Of course, what I did know was the earlier part of the story. And, uh, and I said, your son. And so we got out of the building. She did not want to see him uh, because she felt bad about having given him up for adoption. And again, that's part of the story. And so uh, later that night, she told me the whole story that when she was just 18, uh, she was working in Las Vegas mm-hmm. uh, as a showgirl. And mm-hmm. uh, um, she and a couple of her girlfriends were um, staying at the Flamingo Hotel. They had a little room out back and they were invited to a party at the Sahara. The party was being thrown by Elvis Presley's Memphis Mafia, and (laughs) she was invited to go with the girls to that party. Colonel Parker and everybody, obviously, yeah. Well, not Colonel Parker. He was never part of the Mafia, but she met all of the boys. Oh, okay. (laughs) And, of course, uh, she, uh, she met Elvis. And Elvis had this thing for virgins, and she was a virgin mm. at the time, and Elvis had a thing for showgirls, and of course she was a showgirl at the time, and so Elvis never let her out of his sight. They spent the night, uh, you know, listening to music, partying, so to speak, and then uh, uh, he walked her back to her place, and that seemed like that was going to be it, and he had like this epiphany that, you know, this is a, this is a woman I want to, uh, you know, know further, and he asked her if uh, they could get together, hook up. I don't know what the current term is for kids these days, but <laughs> they ended up having a one-night stand uh, that night. And uh, um, he and the Memphis boys went on to Hawaii. They were starting filming on Blue Hawaii. Mm. And when he got to, when he got there, uh, he remembered her and called her, and she came out to the set uh, for uh, uh, like a three-day visit. Uh, he paid her expenses and all, and uh, she was there for a couple of days. She met Hal Wallace, who was the producer of uh, Blue, right. Blue Hawaii, and of course right. uh, was there with the Memphis Boys, and Colonel Parker was there too. <laughs> uh, so uh, when she returned from the trip, she discovered she was pregnant, and um, and she had no idea what to do uh, with the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was raised in a Lutheran uh, uh, church, so you know, the idea of abortion was completely out of the picture. And so she didn't want to ruin Elvis's career uh, with this. So she went to the um, uh, colonel and uh, um, he convinced her to have the child and give it up for adoption. And um, so on December uh, 24th, Christmas Eve, it was snowy Christmas Eve, uh, she gave birth to Elvis in a Gary, Indiana, uh, hospital and she had been staying on the south south side of chicago 
in an apartment that uh, the colonel had rented for her. And uh, wow. that same night, that same night, she gave the baby up for adoption. And the colonel had lined up a uh, circus couple. Uh, they were known as the Vargas uh, performers uh, with the Ringling Brothers Circus. And really? uh, their last name was Stanley. <laughs> the last name was Stanek. Okay. Well, you know, the colonel, um, I mean, the this, colonel was this, adopted him Yes, 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 yes. I, this whole saga sounds like it should have been a... Uh, it's bittersweet, and it's also of a time. Everything here sounds like a Hollywood story, a TV movie yeah. of the 80s about a Hollywood story from the 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, before, yeah. you know, this is the way things were done this way, handled this way. But the fact that, exactly. he, that the colonel was even, they were providing, they didn't dump her. They were providing for her. It's like it's all protecting Ellis's career, but they're they're looking out for her. And, and you know, it's a heartache to give your kid up like way. I mean, yes, we just look at this through different eyes now, anyone, anyone listening to this. But this was, that was the way of the time. And it could have been a much different, it could have been a much crueler, a much sadder, a much more tragic outcome. But the fact that it's going along this way, that she was provided for and everybody was protecting each other, um, yeah, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. You know, yeah. It was, yeah, Larry, it was all about the revenue stream. You know, if, <laughs> uh, if, Elvis, had been, if Elvis had been caught having an affair, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, it would not have been a good thing. And uh, he was not in a position to marry, uh, you know, a lowly showgirl, you mm-hmm. know, and so... Uh, you know, we, it was all hope that would get swept underneath the rug, um, but um, um, it, it didn't. It, um, well, I mean, it was to a certain extent for a while, but then eventually. Yeah. Yes. Now, has she ever yeah, met? Uh, had she ever? So Michael is raised, the, 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 and you've. So yeah, Philip, what's what's uh, the end game? Yes, Philip. What's the yeah, what's so the end game okay. of this? Uh-huh. So Philip uh, was raised by the the Senate to. Uh, uh, be in the circus. And so he was a clown for a while. He uh, uh, trained wild animals. And then he discovered that he had an act for singing. And he's <laughs> actually been singing in venues all over the U.S. and the world. He had actually gone overseas when Elda Senior never did. And so um, uh, she stayed clear because she was very much afraid of the right. colonel and what he would do to her. Right. Now, you know, there's a, there's a interesting sideline. In 1967, she did do the movie Clambake with Elvis. And, um, hmm. But she was at that point Angelique Pettyjohn and not uh, Dorothy Lee Parents, which is what she had been before. Right. And um, when the colonel saw the, the call sheets for Clambake, uh, he saw that Elvis and and her were going to be paired up. And he says, we can't do that. So Shelley Fabray got a boost in her career. She ended up being the girlfriend of Elvis. And wow. uh, Angelique became the girlfriend of Bill Bixby, the secondary star of the movie Clambeck. Wow. Okay. Just so they would not be yeah. together. Well, now, so what, so, so Angelique and, and her son, did they ever, did she ever meet him? Did he, he was told, no, I guess, she, when he uh, turned 18, was that the, the way it was handled? 21. 21. Yeah. He was told he was 21. He yeah. immediately sought the oh. name change then, it sounds, by the timing there. Yeah, just a few years later, because right. he uh, wanted to... Pretty close. Yeah, he wanted to know if uh, if they even cared, if she even cared about him, and she wanted to know mm-hmm. if he would forgive her for giving him up. Right. And they never spoke about it. You know, this is, this is where I felt, you know, as a psychologist, I could have gotten in there and, and really worked with these two, but they just stayed apart. 
Um, so they now, never met. Years, they never met. Oh, uh, right. They came close at that um, uh, courtroom hearing, but uh, they wow. never met. And uh, and then she passed uh, about five years later. She passed, yeah, a few years later, exactly. And I met um, Elvis. Uh, he likes to be called Junior or Elvis Junior. <laughs> just a few years ago, he's a great guy. Um, he is a beautiful. He has a beautiful voice, and it sounds just like Elvis when well, he sings. And then to and then to bring this totally full circle, and and you get into this yeah. in the book, but it, to bring this totally full circle, it turns out that Elvis was a Star Trek fan. Elvis Senior was, yeah. Elvis yeah. Senior was Elvis, right, uh, not not the, the junior, but yeah, Elvis Senior. Uh, one of his uh, Memphis Mafia boys was into science fiction, UFOs, things like that, and talked him into watching Star Trek, and. Uh, they did, and Elvis liked it so much. He said, "We're not going to do anything on Thursday nights, but have the time available to watch Star Trek." And so, uh, what ended up happening is when Kirk is scoring all these babes on Star Trek, Elvis is there thinking, "I got to get some of these girls myself." And he hired a dozen different girls from the Star Trek episodes that had been Kirk's uh, girlfriends on. You know, on the show, on different episodes, and yeah. they played as um, lead girls in his movies. That's in the, that's in how the... much of a Star Trek fan he was. Well, that's just that's just amazing, John. And again, the name of the book it's out now is sure, the Sci-Fi Siren Who Dared Love Elvis and Other Stuff. <laughs> and it's not your first book. Again, we we went light on that on this visit, but uh, you've been a, a dean, an associate dean, a faculty member. Uh, for 32 years, variously, and other books to your credit, people can look up uh, John Flynn, your book. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, this is actually my 20th book. There we go, there we go. John, listen, thanks so much for coming and sharing. <laughs> I should, uh, sharing Angelique's story is, is, is such a tame way of putting it. I mean, you've added so much to what people were know. A lot of folks were not in first-generation fandom and had the chance to, to meet Angelique uh, first-hand at convention, and the fact that she was able to work and, again, had a renaissance thanks to Star Trek, and somehow maybe even had the courage to, even in her own way, face this aspect of her life, and she certainly uh, shared it with you, so um, so it's it's recorded a little more, uh, you know, with a little more passion and, and um, pathos here that we have. So thanks, thanks exactly. John, once again for dropping by the Trek Files. Thank you so much for having me. I've had so much fun. Thank you. Well, thank you. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Now, all of our documents, as always, and your chance to comment, are available right on Facebook at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Now, for more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47, that's me, <laughs> at LarryNemacek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.